show starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, go. Hello, everyone. Greetings. Welcome to Turning a Moment into a Movement. I am your host, Jay Love, and I also represent the Justice for Gerard movement. And um, for those, if this is your first time joining us, Gerard is my son who just recently passed away. But however, he was wrongfully convicted of a crime that he did not do, had no knowledge of, and he served two years in the Michigan Department of Corrections. And so because of that journey with my son, Gerard, um, I felt like it, it was my duty to educate our community about wrongful convictions. Because when I was going through it, I had a hard time finding information, connecting with people um, in the beginning. But through that whole experience, through the whole entire experience um, with Gerard and working with others who have loved ones um, that are wrongfully convicted, we created this platform. So welcome, thank you for joining us. Thank you for those who are watching on YouTube, hello, on Twitter, hello, um, on Spotify later, and those who are gonna watch it later, welcome. So today we have a very, um, interesting story, a wrongful conviction story of Andre Lee Nelson. And so we're going to talk about him. We talked about him the last time we were here a little bit, but we're really going to dig into the story. So, but first I want to um, introduce you guys to the panel that's here today. Greetings, Reverend Tia. Well, greetings. Hello, everybody. I'm just so glad to be here this evening. And Jay, I'm, I'm so blessed to have you in my life demonstrating peace and power and love in the midst of the storm, turning a moment into a movement and, um, you know, talking about wrongful convictions. Hello, Nicole. I see Nicole has chimed in and Pamela. We got some, we got some great followers out here, Thomas. <laughs> yes, free me. Uh, and this is where we are. We're, we're talking about freeing people. And and you know what, Jay, really fit freeing our minds, freeing uh, our families, yes. having a, an understanding about what's happening so that we know what to do, really going after the answers and the solutions. Mm -hmm. And so um, anyway, I'm, I'm Reverend Tia, and I'm coming from all the way from uh, Ipsy tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll stand on the platform for Michigan Coalition of Human Rights. And of course, we do have an event coming up on Sunday and I'll drop the line to you uh, later. Um, but just wanted to um, let you know that as a behaviorist in the community and as a, an activist in the community and as a mother and grandmother, I am so willing to change the narrative Mm -hmm. on everything in order to take my life back and to set precedence 
for my grandchildren. And yes. I hope others are like that out there also. Thanks, Jay. Thank you, Rabbit Tia. Uh, Tony Hugo Matt. Jay Love, how are you? Now, see, why y'all always laugh when you see me? That's what I can't understand. <laughs> You know, Tony back. I'm going to mute, mute myself and let you take over. Take <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Look. Hugo J. Mack is my name. Proud to be here. Criminal defense attorney, former candidate for Washtenaw County prosecuting attorney. Proud to do so because we need people in positions that have a heart. You hear me? That have a heart for justice. That's what we need. Okay. And I hope that my candidacy encourage other people. I know what it's like to come from a penitentiary experience. I know what it's like to pay a debt you don't owe. That's why I'm so dedicated to this, this cause. So I want to thank you, J. Love. I want to thank you, Reverend Tia. I've got another platform here. If my transmission is bad, I'm going to switch to another platform, okay? So, um, if the trend, I switch to another platform and I apologize. I've had people out here five times and they tell me nothing is wrong. So I, I apologize. I don't know what that is. So in any event, God bless you. I love you. And I'm proud to be here with you. I'm happy you're here too, Attorney Matt. I'm going to mute you now. Okay. <laughs> so we have Attorney Matt and we also have Attorney Payne in today with us. Hi, Attorney Payne. How are you? Well, good evening, everyone. I'm, I'm well, and and uh, I, too, am happy and proud to be here among uh, this esteemed group and panel. Um, I am uh, Dorphine Payne, and I, too, am an attorney. Um, I've, I've, uh, I've been a, an attorney of, in criminal law. Um, most of my focus more recent in more recent years has been juvenile law, um, but um, I've uh, been an attorney for a long time. I, I too ran for prosecuting attorney in Kalamazoo County um, because I understand uh, the importance um, of um, prosecutors who um, are I believe in justice. Uh, not um, just us, but justice for all. Uh, it's um, it's offensive. It's um, uh, it's dangerous for our community. It's um, a terrible problem uh, for in our community when prosecutors don't behave as they ought, um, and. Um, we need prosecutors who are progressive, who understand the issues in community, who understand the importance of holding police officers accountable for everything they do, uh, for holding, uh, for standing before a judge and asking for uh, and presenting appropriate evidence. We understand the importance of that. And so even defense attorneys, uh, uh, more than anything, understand the importance of righteous prosecutors. Um, I'm just happy to be here today to discuss this very extremely important issue. Um, 
and and one more time to be in in the company of these wonderful uh, committed pe uh, individuals who um, are continually making uh, following their God's purpose in their lives and um, making a contribution and trying to make a difference. Yes, thank you, Attorney Payne. I'm so excited every time that you come to bring your perspective as well to us, to the table and to the um, subject matter. So, Attorney Payne, you wasn't with us the last time, but um, a couple of weeks ago, um, this young lady um, sent me a message about her brother who had been wrongfully convicted, and he's been in the Michigan Department of Corrections for over 30 years for a crime he didn't do. Um, she started explaining some of the things uniquely um, to his case to me, and immediately I was like, we need you to come on ASAP. You know, we were, uh, it was the weekend of the wrongful conviction rally. So I really wanted to, I promised her that, you know, we are really going to um, go through this case and talk about her brother. His name is Andre Lee Nelson, and I'm going to bring on his sister now, Yolanda Nelson. Hello, Yolanda. Hello. Good evening, everyone. <laughs> Hi. So, Yolanda. Uh, introduce yourself and tell us about who you are and about your brother. Well, my name is Yolanda Nelson. Um, my brother is Andre Lee Nelson. And he was convicted of a crime that he did not commit. And it's been 30 years as of this year. Mm. And I want his story to be heard and told that he did not commit this. He was... Um, he was illiterate. Um, the police made a confession up and he told him to sign it. He signed it. And when he signed it, he thought he was coming home because that's what they told him. And then come to find out that was a confession that he signed saying that he did it. But his whole entire case has nothing to do with him. It started off with Andre Nelson did a murder and the rest of the case is all a bunch of crackheads. Yes. So um, when you say he's illiterate, you was telling me some details about him. Let's talk about Andre uh, a little bit. Um, you were telling me about his IQ because I really want Revitia to talk about that because she's a behavior therapist. But just explain to us about his um, his um, IQ and type of, you know, learning difficulties that he had. Okay. Yeah. His IQ when he got locked up was 55 and um, he was 23 years old. Um, he was always in a special, his whole entire, you know, um, you going to school, he was always in a special. And um, when he went to jail, he didn't even know how to spell his mom's name. He was 23 at the time. Rabbitia. Ramitia, we can't hear you. Okay, can you hear me? Okay. So now um, what I was going to say was that when you talk about an IQ of 55 uh, or 50, now, and I want people to understand that if 70, 
70, if a, if a child has an IQ of 70, they already know that that individual may have a difficult time in school just with 70. And what was his IQ? 55. 55. So moderate mental retardation is between 35 to 40 and 50 to 55. So it, it, and it goes, you know, what I'm saying is between 35 and 55, they call it moderate retardation. Mm -hmm. And severe mental retardation is an IQ between 20 to 25 and sometimes even 35 to 40. And the reason why they have the differences and sometimes you say, well, why do they overlap? And sometimes cognitively, a person may be able to grasp something more than another, and even though they have a lower IQ and sometimes um, developmentally, there's a lot of um, physical factors that may, may also be included in that um, assessment. So between, you know, if you're talking 55, you're talking moderate retardation. And so, so I'm sorry, go ahead. go ahead. Oh, so I was just going to say, so they did not even factor in the disability. Mm-hmm. No one factored in the disability. They did not look at the disability. Mm-hmm. That, and I had I had uh, another um, civil rights activist, uh, Bishop um, Bernadette Jefferson, said, "Don't forget to mention, you know, that's a human rights issue." Mm. Because if you are incarcerated and you have a disability, you have a right to have that disability looked at and factored in. And they didn't do that. So, Yolanda, tell us, um, take us on that day that he was, you know, the issue that happened, the situation, and then to... Um, his arrest. Okay, on September the 14th, approximately, um, I want to say like 10 o'clock, 10.30 p.m., um, I had just left my my grandmother's house from picking up my children. I used to go and play bingo, and um, and I used to drop my kids off to my grandmother's house. So when I came back from bingo, I picked my kids up from bingo. I got him in the car and I and I was heading home. So I got to the corner of my grandmother's street, which is um, Mendota and Buena Vista. A guy named Moody Blue, that's what they called him in the neighborhood. He walked up to me, he, he ran up to my car and was like, he was, they called me Yo-Yo. He was like, Yo-Yo, Yo-Yo, they said I killed Billy Booker. And I said, what? He said, yeah, they said I killed Billy Booker. I said, why would they say you killed Billy Booker, you know? So when he said that to me, I backed my car up and um, I went back, I drove in reverse because we only five houses off the corner. And um, I went in the house and I went in the house and I told my grandmother um, and, and my mom and them was all in the house. And I told them, they said, Moody just said that Billy Booker just got killed and the police is around the corner everywhere. So I got on the phone and I called my brother, Andre, 
and um, I called him. He was on the east side. And I was calling him and telling him, I was like, they said Billy Booker just got killed. Now, Billy Booker stayed across the street from us, down the street. We grew up together. You know, we was very tight in the Mendota area. You know, we was all tight in the neighborhood. They was much older than us. Billy Booker was much older than me because him and my sister used to go together. So, um, and that was that. I told my brother that and I went on home, got in my car, packed my kids up and went on home. Hold on so, for one second. I'm sorry to interrupt you. This is key. What year was this? This was 1993, September okay. the 14th, 1993. Okay, now go ahead. Yes. And so I went on home and, you know, lived my life normal, talked to my brother every day. I remind you, I was a more like a mother to my brother. We were very close. We were the same age for five days. I always looked after him because I knew he had a disability. And I never let nobody, you know, run over him, uh, take advantage of him or anything. So he'll tell you right now, I've always been his mama and I always acted like his mama. Because I used to always tell him, like, you know, because people, he likes to, he used to try to hang with guys that's, that's in the street, you know. And I tell him all the time, you can't hang with them people because them people, they'll take advantage of you. You know what I'm saying? Because you're not you're not built for the, the streets, you know? Mm-hmm. So I used to always keep him with me at all times, every house I ever lived in or whatever, he always been with me. So like I said, that went on. After that, like I said, um, him and him, he was living with his girlfriend on the east side and him and his girlfriend, they had a baby and his, he used to be watching the baby while she go to work. So when she go to work, so this particular day, um, she, you know, she was, she was at work. He was babysitting that day, September the 14th, because I called him and talked to him on the phone. He didn't have no vehicle. He stayed on the East side and, you know, so I, it wasn't nothing. So anyway, him and his girlfriend end up getting into it and him, him and his girlfriend end up splitting up with one another. So my brother ended up having to come back home. So he was at my grandmother's house on Mendota. So, uh, I, it was like around about October, the beginning, like October the 10th or something, uh, uh, or the 9th or somewhere up in there, he told me that he lost his ID, but he was at a friend of our house down the street on Mendota and his ID came up missing. And I'm like, like your ID? Cause I made sure he always had his ID and everything. So mm-hmm. Next thing I know, October the 12th, me, my mom, and my grandmother, we was at bingo. We went to bingo. My sister, my sister was at the house. My sister and my brother and my children was at the house. They were babysitting for me. And I get a call from the bingo hall and said, um, Yolanda Nelson, you have an important phone call. So I got up and I went and took the phone call. It was my sister calling me, telling me that the police just came and picked up Andre. I'm like, the police could picked up Andre for what? She said, they mm-hmm. said they picked him up for Billy Booker's um, murder. I'm like, murder? How, why would they pick him up for his murder? That boy got killed last month. Okay. Your sound went out. She's muted. Unmute yourself, Yolanda. Okay, so watch Yolanda work with her technical difficulties. 
Revitia, I saw that you were posting some things in the chat. Yeah, I, you know, I want people to really understand that um, we're talking about cognitive delay. And so now, and I want to preface the point that it doesn't mean the person can't <laughs> learn because we, we do have, in, in our community, we need to go ahead and talk about this mm -hmm. because um, it, it just means a slow to understand, slow to verbalize, difficulty in communication of basics, your basics in reading, writing, and counting skills. So a person who, um, and, and, and they're, uh, I'm kind of jumping because the other thing is that moderate retardation is a developmental disability that starts when they're born. Mm -hmm. And so the delay just doesn't happen later. It happens because of, um, my light just went out, it, because it, it happens due to, you'll, I mean, you'll see symptoms in crawling. There'll be a delay in in the development of that child. So it's not just it's not just something that happens all of a sudden. Um, so the milestones when it comes to sitting, crawling, walking later than other children, problems learning to talk or trouble speaking clearly, memory problems, um, inability to understand consequences of actions, and, and see. I'm saying this because if a person doesn't bring up the entire scope mm -hmm. of that individual and allow them to see the person, to see Andre, who is he, then they'll probably they probably keyed on, well, he doesn't understand his his actions. Or did he? Did they even say that? Mm -hmm. Did they even say that? Um inability to think logically very important because if you're planning to kill somebody you have to have some type of logic to get from point a to point b to point c to finish um the child's behavior is inconsistent with their age lack of curiosity learning difficulties which i've said an inability to lead a fully independent life due to challenges in communication, taking care of themselves, or interacting with others. Now, it doesn't mean that the person always has these things. Um, sometimes you run across people who, who have mental retardation and they show signs of aggression, dependency, withdrawal from social activities, attention-seeking behavior, um, depression, lack of impulse control. And a lot of these things, self-injury, stubbornness, low self-esteem, low tolerance for frustration. Now, the one, those, those items that I just listed, that comes because they can't communicate. Mm -hmm. That comes, uh, the frustration will occur if they have trouble getting their point across you have trouble saying what they're really feeling and, and able to put it into words right. what they did was inhumane right. and they need to pay for this right. 
So Yolanda, go back to the story we're at. He is arrested. Mm -hmm. So he was arrested. It was October the 12th, um, October the 12th, 1993, which is a month later. And um, when they, uh, my sister was there, um, my sister said the police knocked on the door and they was like, um, we're here for Andre Lee Tillman. My sister said, Andre Lee Tillman, sorry, there's no Andre Lee Tillman here. My brother got up, was like, I'm Andre Lee Nelson. And he said, are you Andre Lee Nelson? You're under arrest. And that's what that happened. And they took him out of their handcuffs. And my sister told me, so when my, call, my sister called me, I was like, well, they'll be letting him go because I ain't worried about him talking about Billy Booker murder. I'm not even worried about that. So the next day came, they still like that. So now I'm constantly, constantly calling. I'm calling every day. Me and my mother, we just constantly calling every day. Can I get through with them? We let them know that he was illiterate. You know, he's slow. He, he can't read. He can't write. You know, we need to talk with him, you know, because, you know, now he's been down there over 24 hours by himself. And so now he really feel alone because I'm always, I'm always, I was, I was the one that's there for him. And, you know, and he listened to me and by me not being there and him not being able to talk to me or hear from me, it was, I, I knew it was something. So it was like three or four days later when they come call, when I called down and they was like, well, he has been um, charged with murder in the first degree. And I'm like, how? He said, well, he made a confession. I said, how can he make a confession when he cannot even read or write? She was like, I wrote it out to him and he understood. And I was like, he, I said, I can tell you, I don't want to call him and told him that this guy was, this guy had unpassed. He was, she was like, well, I was like, well, did he give you his alibi? I don't believe his alibi. And we told his statement up. They told his alibi up. So I'm like, you told his stuff up. I said, well, why you can't either? I said, well, y'all was going to do that. And she checked off on the on the, on the the paper that saying that he signed the confession. It got on there. She checked it off that he was illiterate. She checked it off because she knew he was illiterate when it come down to write, you know, to read. And he couldn't, he didn't know not one word on there. So if he did, if he did admit to a confession, how do we know? Is that what they wrote down? You understand what I'm saying? I said we asked why you didn't um, use a, um, a um, what they call that a tape recorder or or a video cam. She's like, oh, we just don't do that. Mm -hmm. we, we don't we don't do that. So that's what she said she did. So she, now she went from a, a homicide detective to a psychologist and to see if she he was a uh, lying or not. So she did all this. She played all these roles in one. Who is the she? Her name Who is, is she? I'm sorry. Her name is her name is Sergeant um, Kenny. And we're gonna talk Kenny, about her Kenny, in a minute. Her name, Kenny and it's Tillman on the end, but that's another story too. Okay. Right, we're gonna talk about her in a minute. Attorney Payne, <laughs> what are you thinking? Oh, uh, uh, <laughs> well, I have a lot of questions. Okay. Um, you know. I'm wondering, you know, I, I haven't seen the, I haven't seen the, the, um, the case. So, I, I, but, you know, number one, it, I don't know about, I, I'm sure that attorney Mac would agree that if I have a client with a 55 IQ, I'm going to immediately have a forensic uh, interview and a psychological evaluation and a determination as to whether or not 
he had the intellectual capacity to understand what he was signing, um, to understand what was going on at the time. So I'm wondering if that occurred. Um, if the police came for someone named Andre Lee Tillman and said they had an arrest warrant for an Andre Lee Tillman, I'm wondering why Andre Lee Nelson was arrested and what that arrest warrant said. Um, I mean, there's just a, I have a lot of questions, more questions than uh, answers. I, I, you know, I don't know about um, uh, how retardation figures into this, but I do know that I've never had a, a client with, a, with an IQ of 55 that wasn't examined. Uh, and I, I would have a legitimate argument about his intellectual capacity. Um, so that was the first thing that came to mind. Uh, the fact that he signed a confession, let me see, this was 30 years ago. You know, the fact that he wouldn't even understand his rights. Did he have the intellectual capacity to understand his rights, even if they read them to him? Uh, and if there, if that wasn't videoed or if there wasn't any audio, uh, it doesn't sound as if uh, any of the protocol were followed or any of his rights that he was, um, uh, uh, any of his rights were respected at the time. Uh, so it sounds shaky, but I've never seen the file, so I don't have any answers to those questions. Um, but it it uh, it's disturbing. Uh, it's extremely disturbing. His whole case happened. His case started off as Andre Lee Nelson murdered this guy, and the rest of his whole case has nothing to do with him. It's saying it's a confession, and it's it, it's it's just. I, it, you know, I got put out the courtroom because it was just, I was just so overwhelmed for me. Um, it was just, it was just terrible. It was just terrible. And like I said, at that time, it was just me. My whole entire family was on crack. That's when crack hit the neighborhood and it tore our community up. And I only had nobody but me and my little brother. And that was it. So I was looking at, you know, in 1993 during that era, 1994 is when um, Clinton signed the crime bill. 1993 yeah. in Detroit, they were having a lot of crime and they were supposed mm -hmm. to be doing reforms and it was just a lot of stuff going on. And I think it was, um, I'm trying to remember um, his name that was the, the police um, chief at the time who was indicted for embezzlement. I can't think of his name at the time, was but it yeah, it Chief Hart. Yes, it was Hart. And then the, the next chief who was there, I think he was short lived, but he tried reforms, but it was a lot of stuff going on at that time in Detroit. And it was a lot of brutality and corruption. This was all around too, I think, around the Malice Green era, mm -hmm. all in that time. So it was a lot of stuff going on in the city. And then the crack era was just devastating in the community at that time. And so what you're saying that you also mentioned that this 
murder took place where where they were smoking crack or yeah it was a crack house <laughs> and me and my brother we never smoked crack we ain't even you know be around that the, mm-hmm. everybody that was in the house was crackheads so right. that's that's your murder there you know right right attorney matt do you want to say anything before we go further any further uh yes um first of all can you hear me without muting yourself jayla yeah you could Okay. I can. Okay. <laughs> I, I have to ask that because it's so embarrassing. Okay, it's so embarrassing. So, uh, you know, it was about maybe, what is it, maybe seven, eight years ago when a Supreme Court said that ju- that juveniles, people like uh, 18 years of age convicted of murder, uh, you cannot give them mandatory life imprisonment without having the judge review them because they're, they're, they're mentally are not developed to the full extent of an adult. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious if anybody in Ms. Nelson's case has ever approached it from that way, because it seems to me, even though a person may chronologically be, uh, Ms. Nelson, how, how old was your brother when this happened? He was 23. Okay, see what I'm saying? So even though, and, and you know, counsel can, can um, correct me on this if I'm wrong, but just because a person is chronologically a particular age, it doesn't mean they're mentally developed to that particular age. Correct. So it, it's, it seems to me a person with dealing with a mild retardation, I don't know how that person is any less worthy of a review of their mental state uh, because of their 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 condition as opposed to a 17 year old who gets convicted of, of first degree murder mm-hmm. has that ever been approached uh miss nelson no no they gave him life never chance of parole he's supposed to die there well i'm 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 telling you uh counsel i i'd appreciate your counsel Payne. i appreciate your, your your input on this doesn't that make a plausible argument though that he should at least have his life sentence reviewed in light of his uh, mental retardation at the time that this crime was committed, allegedly? Yeah, not only that, but you know that the science, um, Mm -hmm. uh, the current science uh, indicates that uh, it's not, brain development is, is, uh, is questionable up to age 24. Uh, so okay. he should, he immediately should be eligible for a review, uh, just based upon the current science. Uh, in fact, I thought that there was a recent case where a young man, um, was released, um, based upon some of that current science. Uh, and he wasn't, he was, he was above 18, when he was convicted, but he got an LWAP and he, I, I'm sure that it was, I'm sure that he was older than 18, but it, and it was based upon, you know, brain development. So I, I do, I, you know, but even <laughs> that should have happened. That should, that should have been happening right now, even with the conviction, it should have, it, he's still eligible. To, for review. So is anyone uh, working on an appeal for him? Um, 
or an, a, a review for him currently? No. No. Uh, uh, Ms. Nelson, what county was this out of? Wang. Mm. Well, you know, Jay Love and, 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 and staff, um, Kim Worthy has been, I was looking up some statistics on this. Can you hear me? Mm -hmm. um, um, a while back, Kim Worthy has been the most resistant yes, prosecutor is. to allow people to, for example, after, after they have their hearing on their mental state, it doesn't mean that their sentence is reduced. It means it's review for possible reduction. So you you can be a 17-year-old having been convicted of first-degree murder, have a review and still do life in prison. Still. Okay. So mm -hmm. that's not a guarantee. All that is is an opportunity. So well, can I say uh, something? Yes. Yeah, um, Kim Worthy, um, he wrote Kim Worthy, uh, I think it's like three years, four years ago. And um, asked her, would she look at the case and stuff? She said, no, she cannot look at the case because he signed a confession. And I got the letter too. I have that too, that she yeah. sent back and told him. So she didn't even look at it. She just said no, because you signed a confession. Wow, wow, yeah. So that that pretty much would match the stats that I was about to talk to you about, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and 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 if if he was mentally challenged, maturity wise and otherwise, it doesn't matter if he's signed a confession or not. You see, it it, it doesn't because the same mental infirmity that would have affected his ability to defend himself would also affect his inability to stop and say, "I'm not signing this." You know, and you see. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but it's a criminal defense attorney in me. I got a bunch of questions. When 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 he was there, did he even ask for an attorney? Did did he, did they even no. say you have a right to remain silent? I mean, anything ever done? Um, well, I got the paperwork saying that they they read that to him and they told him to initial um, everything after they said he did initial it, but but him by him initial it, he didn't understand none of that, so he didn't know nothing about attorney. So that's why he was there. And and like I said, they holding him for so long, and 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 kept putting it in his head to where he was. She wrote it down that the stuff that he said, he said that he went over there and robbed the man, and he robbed the man for thirty dollars, oh, okay. and and this crazy oh. stuff. It's just okay, okay. But what was the interview recorded? No, nothing. That's what I'm saying. No recording. Mm -hmm. We asked that the her, his his court-appointed lawyer during the what's the name with the trial they asked him like well why wouldn't you if you knew that and you marked off the box saying that he was um he was um, um illiterate why wouldn't you use a tape recorder why wouldn't you use a video recording saying that she said because i just didn't want to i just didn't because i knew that he was lying it's everything is on paper you know if y'all see his case it's just <laughs> i've been waiting for this moment for somebody to hear you just don't know because it's all about money, 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 money. I don't have no money. So that's why it's so hard. So when y'all got this wrongfully conviction thing, it, you know, it, 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 it helped a lot. And that's why they did it. Yes. That's what I need people to understand. They did it 
because economically you were you were at a disadvantage mm -hmm. and that's why they did it and that's why they continue to do it because he was he's not the only one yeah that's right he's not the only one he's one of many that they went into economically disadvantaged communities where there is disparity and, and this is what i need people to understand that in america we have criminalized poverty mm -hmm. and we're not we haven't tried to help and at the helm at the helm of the leadership in in offices that could possibly help to turn things around they perpetuate it mm -hmm. and if we don't get the information and begin to take back our families and fight for what is right yes she could have overturned it that any one of those people could have overturned it but you know what their ego is so big they don't want to be wrong they'd rather convict a lot of people than say i made a mistake right yeah and whoever that sergeant was i'm praying so oh. let's so let's talk about her for a minute <clears throat> yes mm, mm, mm. her name again yolanda sergeant ivy kenny dash tillman right so is that a coincidence that she was looking for uh andre lee tillman and andre lee nelson with her last name <laughs> mm -hmm. but we're gonna this is this is her this is um the same um and i got this from a google search that anybody could go and google but joanne that's her name joanne kenny tillman yes, is before um, this case, I think this happened in uh, 1992. She was involved with um, eliciting a confession from a 12-year-old girl of a murder of a child that she was babysitting by promising that she could go home if she confessed to the crime. The confession was thrown out of juvenile court that happened in 1992 that she was involved in. She let her, um, Joanne Kenny testify later in federal civil court um, uh, lawsuit for the city of Detroit um, that she, that's, um, that she, um, that the city of Detroit had a policy and a practice of detaining witnesses. Of course, that policy had been thoroughly exposed when the U.S. Department of Justice put the Detroit Police Department under a consent agreement which, uh, with uh, regards to the use of force and practices of witnessing Roundup mm -hmm. in 20, um, 2003. She also... She also was the police officer that was involved with... Um, Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick at the time when she said he assaulted her and another officer when she was trying to serve a subpoena and she left the force and she became an investigator for the prosecutor's office. And then also she uh, was involved in, this was when the city paid out five-figure settlement in 1995 because 
she locked up a, a, a lady accused of a murder, um, a mother or two, as a witness. She was a witness. I'm sorry. She wasn't accused of a murder, but she was a witness. Illegally holding her and her 12-year-old until her 12-year-old and her 6-year-old son in, implicated her in a death. And so because of that, the judge was so outraged in court by this. The judge said, I, if I had ever seen a case where police had manufactured the facts, this is one. I have never had facts as egregious as this case. She was involved in that as well. So she has a history. This all, if anyone want to Google her or Google this, I got this from thevoiceofdetroit.net that talks about her. So where is she now? Now she's at the Wayne County Integrity Unit. <laughs> yes. So that's why I have a case. I um the integrity unit have his case. Been having his case since May of 2020, and they still have not contacted him or tried to do anything, you know, or try to look at his case or anything. So that's what we're trying to say. We thinking, me and my brother is thinking that she and got a hold to his case and then put it to the side or threw it out. But I do have the paper saying that no news is good news and no news is good news and your case remain open. This is from the integrity unit right here. This is it. This is the letter right here that I got from him. And we still have it. I still right now call now. So I called last week. Now you can't call no more. You can't call no more. They don't say they don't answer no questions. They said, if you're calling about the case, yeah, we have to do it, you know, in order. Then the order it was received. So just sit back and wait. So, yes. I agree with Pamela says. She does not have a clue of what integrity is. Not at all. <laughs> so, I just had who's to over, Who's over the integrity unit? I'm sorry. Do you know who's this Wayne over County? There? This is uh, Wayne County Integrity Unit. Kim Wardy and Valerie Newman. Valerie Newman. This is Kim Wardy's office. This is not an integrity unit at all. So, so have you? I, I just have a question. Do you have? Have you? Have you contacted? I, I, I'm assuming that you've talk, spoken to ACLU uh, to. Uh, uh, a number of um, indigent defense attorneys that uh, review cases and have you done that? No. Everybody I didn't contact or my brother has to contact, everybody want money and I don't, like I said, I don't have the money. You know, it costs so much. I even had um, Scott Lewis, I asked him, could he please, because he charged a lot of money and I asked him, can you just please? I'm like, and if anything, you know, you find out something and he get out and he gets some money or something or, you know, we can pay you later. Could you just please just look into it? And it was a no. Everybody want money, so. Um, yeah, but there are or there are uh, organizations that look at cases 
um, and review them and file um, pro bono. He, my brother said my brother said something about that pro bono. He had me to call somebody and I called them and I left a um, they never answered the phone, but I left I didn't left a lot of messages on people's phones and stuff that you know, people numbers that he gave me and and never got a return call back or nothing. It's just like when I start off telling the case, it's just like um it's like it's so much, you know, it's like, you know, people don't even have the time to listen. Like I said, what y'all didn't hurt is just the beginning and you know just the beginning i don't know how to explain it that's just the beginning it's just so much and i'm just like when kim worthy when he wrote her he wrote her and and that's what she told him she didn't get to take the chance out to even look at it and read it or none of that so Well, they have. I'm 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 thinking about National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers uh, that take. Uh, they have a Return to Freedom project. There are a number of. of the Innocent Program. You talking about the Innocent Program? No, I'm talking. No, that's. It's a different program. It's like that though, um, but um, I can give you the. I can give you the information or or get it to you uh, of uh, potential people that you could contact. Okay. Okay. I'll look into it. So I wanted to play this video. Uh, uh, oh, go ahead, Tony Matt. Oh, well, no, I, I, just, I just had a question. Was this a trial? Yeah, it was a trial. It was a jury. And, um, and the, the, the jury, the, the, the police office that was in there is, which is the guy, Billy Booker, the guy, the, the guy that got killed is his family was in there. And they was talking to the, they was talking to the, um, jury and everything. And I went back and told it. And then like, they blew, they blew everything off and did what they did. Well, well, okay. But, but I'm, Jay Love, I don't want I don't want to delay the, the the broadcast here, but I'm just curious though. So they had the confession. Your brother never testified. Nope. Okay, so your it brother never testified. Nobody testified. Okay. They only let my mom testify, and she testified that she he was um, learning disability and he'd been in a special all his life. They didn't have his okay. ba his mo baby mother, uh, uh, me. Nobody got a chance to testify on his behalf. Not even him. Well, okay, but who testifies and does not testify is a decision for the defense attorney and the defendant. So when you said that they didn't let him, them, it, it, it's not a matter of somebody not letting them. It's a matter of somebody not calling them. So okay, well, it seems to me then that was some kind of a trial strategy or whatever by, by the defense attorney not to bring his family in talk about this guy from when he was born i mean he, he's been this way like ever since he was born ever since he was born yes okay yeah so I'm, I'm curious as to why that why that never came in and i'm curious as to who who put him there somebody was shot is that what happened yeah somebody the guy was shot and killed okay so somebody had to say they saw your brother there with a gun and killed this person right right and can i say okay. this and i can so, I say okay Go ahead. Go, go 
okay so i mean i'm just curious how all that how all that developed somebody okay. it had what two or three people say your brother shot this guy is that what happened yes it's like five people five to six people in the house and um the one young lady that's in the house her name is i don't want to know if i should say her name on here or nothing. but anyway she used to come to my house um my grandmother's in them house because she used to get high with my parents and them and my and my and my family she'd been knowing us over 20 years she was in the house she the one said when the first when the thing first happened on september the 14th they took her down and asked her you know who was the guy she described this guy somebody was five seven two hundred some pound dark complexion facial hair that's not my brother my brother was six one big ears light-skinned soaking wet 130 pounds and she known us because my grandmama used to let her use her asthma machine because she had asthma and she was getting high so the lady knew her knew him so that day when it happened did she describe somebody totally different so when my brother ended up breaking up with his girlfriend and come back over and back in the neighborhood his id ended up coming up missing and then all of a sudden they brought him down for a lineup and, and they picked him out and say he did it because she know he's slow so that was the best thing to do so he can get the heat off of them so they had to blame it on somebody so that's how that happened so you wonder why any of that didn't come out in a trial that there was an early uh description of the assailant and she later identified someone that looked the opposite nothing like her description i mean did she testify yeah, listen, I, I I got everything. I got all the paperwork. She got a Q and A. It's it's terrible. The other people in there that didn't didn't testify. It was like so. His lawyer was like, "Well, the only reason you said that uh, Mr. Nelson did is because he's sitting here." She said, "Yes." His case was just you, you just wouldn't believe y'all y'all just wouldn't believe how his case went. That's just what I say when I say it started off with Andre Nelson killed this such this individual, and then it turned out to be. They had nothing else to do with him. Did else. did they ever do an an uh, an uh, a forensic an inter, uh, did did he ever go to the forensic center? Was there a forensic center back in nineteen ninety three? I don't know. Yes, there was a forensic. Yes, there was yep. forensic yep. in ninety three. Yep. Yeah, because okay, so I used to get clients from forensics in ninety three. Did he go back? go to the forensic center and was there a determination that he I mean I can't imagine him being able to help with assist with his defense. He didn't like I said the the, the murder took place September the 14th. He came back October the 12th. That's when they picked him up October the 12th. A whole month later. So it's like you know Yeah, yeah, but that's not that's not that's that's not what that that's not what she's asking. That's not she's oh. asking. She's asking okay. what she's talking about is the comp, was there ever a competency hearing to see if this man was competent to stand trial, able to assist his attorney? That no, no, there wasn't a competency rule. The, 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 the attorney that he had, he he knew that because he argued that he was slow. He was, you know, mildly retardation. He he argued that in court and everything, and it was just went it still went down. 
you can argue something, but you, you need, I mean, most courts of law require evidence. So the evidence no, no would be. Fingerprints, no fingerprints, no fingerprints. No, 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 she's not talking no. about. She, Yolanda, she's not talking about that. She's talking about his compass. You know, was he able to mentally stand trial? Was there ever any at any time did anyone say, "Hey, we need to check"? To no, see did anybody competent? get on the stand and say mm -hmm. he's not competent to stand trial? When my mom got on stand to tell him that he was Molly, Molly retardation and his, his how he was since birth, she that's the only one. Okay, that's 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 amazing. I, that was the only that, that was, was amazing. That and and they, and they even had they even subpoena all his documents from him. Um, they even um um all his documents from doing school. They even they subpoenaed that and they had that too. So I saw on a on a on a confessing uh, sheet that you sent me that it did say that the police did check that he was illiterate. So it seemed like they would have did that a part of the trial. Well, not being able to read or is not doesn't necessarily indicate that you don't understand or you don't have the capacity to understand what someone's saying to you. You need you need experts to come in and and make that determination and that be a factor at about him even standing trial. Right. You know, right. if he can't assist with his defense, he shouldn't have <laughs> I mean I I don't understand. I don't understand. <laughs> I, so this is 1993. Well, yeah. I mean, we're not talking about 1933. There should have been a competency hearing. There should have been. And, and, yeah. and, and I wonder, certainly there was appeal. There was an appeal after he was convicted. Was there any question about ineffective assistance of counsel or okay. that's why i think they was all working together it was just all nope just nothing I, it's, it's just well it seems know. like they had an agenda mm -hmm. for them to have the you know the the id comes up missing mm -hmm. the there's a delay in the arrest it seems like they were putting things it appears that they were putting it together yes. and then looking at the the time of dispensa dispensation and you know during that whole time um people who had substance use substance use disorder were criminalized especially in the brown the african-american brown communities um people of color always they they came after those neighborhoods first. They come after the people who are economically disenfranchised. And so that is clearly what has happened. But today, so, I don't think we've done enough to broadcast who this woman is. The people who are at the helm and and to publicly make statements that really show, which we are doing right now, show what has happened. 
what they are used to doing. And we have allowed these same people to be promoted within our neighborhoods as civic leaders mm -hmm. at our own demise. So Yolanda, have you, um, um, or have you or your brother reached out to any innocent projects? Um, because those innocent projects, if you can get someone to, um, they have a few here in Michigan, they have others out of state as well. But, you know, to see if they'll be interested in this case, because although it takes them a while to do it, you will have someone else um, looking at that from that perspective. Well, we did have the Innocent program and it was working on it for like, um, like maybe like four years ago. Mm -hmm. And the Innocent program said that they was trying to um, contact all the witnesses and stuff and they couldn't contact them because some people did and some people not there and they couldn't find them and they couldn't do nothing for them. That's what they told them. Okay. Hmm. Mm. So... I wanted to show this video. Let's see what time. Okay, we can show it. Um, just one second, you guys. I gotta navigate this. What I want to talk about actually is what I think is one of the most counterintuitive aspects of human behavior, and that is uh, the tendency for people to give confessions to crimes they did not commit. I have uh, been investigating this topic for, for many years now, and I find that people actually intuitively have a better grasp on why somebody might kill themselves and commit suicide than understand why somebody might confess to a crime they did not commit. You would think, in terms of how common it is, that it almost never happens. Uh, when I first got involved in false confession, in the study of false confessions, it was my sense that I was studying a fascinating aspect of social influence, but not an aspect of social influence that was common. The more I see and the more data that have come out, the more we come to realize that people often confess to crimes they did not commit. We know, for example, that if you look at the Innocence Project DNA exoneration cases, if you just take that sample alone, that number now is up over 250. In roughly 25% of those cases, false confessions were a contributing factor. And I say that's surprising because legal scholars for years have assumed that confession is the gold standard of evidence. And that when you had a confession, you had some degree of certainty of conviction. Certainly some people are more vulnerable to giving false confessions than others. Uh, and I say that for a couple of different reasons. Uh, first, it's important to recognize, I think, that very often false confessions occur voluntarily. That is, somebody who has not committed the crime steps forward without police pressure, without police influence, and confesses to something they didn't do. There's a long history of cases just like that. I, uh, years ago, called these voluntary false confessions. But then when it comes down to looking at vulnerability in the police interrogation setting, it is absolutely clear from the wrongful conviction data, from laboratory experiments, from self-report studies, that juveniles are particularly vulnerable. They are disproportionately represented 
in the population of false confessors, that people with intellectual impairments, the mentally retarded, for example, are disproportionately represented in the population of false confessors, and people with various types of mental illness appear again in that in those numbers with 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 large frequency. It is clear that whether because these populations are naive, whether they are suggestible, whether they are overly compliant, whatever that issue may be, it is clear that in the police interrogation setting where influence is the issue, they are more subject to influence and manipulation than the average person. It is common for people, and, and it would be wrong for people to assume that only the weak and vulnerable confess to crimes they didn't commit. It happens to people who are ordinary, smart, having uh, all, uh, mental health and, 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 and adults. Uh, the reason it happens is, is now it gets down to a story about police interrogation tactics. In the United States, police are allowed to lie about evidence. Police are allowed to turn to a suspect who has for hours denied any involvement and to say to that suspect, You've denied your involvement, and yet we have your fingerprints on the murder weapon. Or we have the victim was in a struggle. We have hair in her grasp. We've done the test. The hair is yours. Or you've taken a polygraph test, a lie detector test, and you failed it. Or you've been identified by a witness. Or we have your fingerprints or your blood or your DNA or what have you. In these cases, we see a number of these cases where the suspect starts to get confused and disoriented and starts to question his or her own innocence. And often the conversation then turns to questions about memory and consciousness. And there are cases on record where suspects who we now know are innocent, not only confessed and signed a confession, but they concluded and inferred that they must actually have committed this crime. There is a, a misassumption, a misconception in the criminal justice system that I'd know a false confession if I saw one. I've heard police say this, that if they took a false confession, they'd know it. I've heard prosecutors say it. I've heard judges say it. There is this common belief that if somebody were to give a false confession, somehow it would be discernible. It would look different. It would sound different than a true confession. Not so. Uh, my colleagues and I several years ago went into a prison outside of Boston to do the following study. We, titled the study, I'd know a false confession if I saw one. We had prisoners confess to the crimes they committed uh, for which they were being incarcerated, and we taped their confessions. And then we had them on the spot make up a confession to something we knew they didn't do. We showed those tapes to people. We showed them to police detectives, experienced police detectives. We showed them to lay people. People couldn't really tell the difference between the true confessions and the false. And so it's not a wonder that judges and juries uncritically accept confessions whenever they hear them. It's virtually impossible to discern a false confession just by looking at it or just by listening to it. And that's why there are so many cases on record where there is on the one hand for a judge and jury to see a confession. There is on the other hand, DNA that excludes the defendant who had confessed. Invariably, confession trumps DNA. It's that powerful. Lots of research has been done. There's lots more to do. Uh, at this point, my colleagues and I are interested in, in two sets of questions. One, I'm interested in using laboratory research methods and the laboratory paradigms that we've developed to try to create more diagnostic interrogation methods. I think interrogation is a process of influence that we could probably design in a laboratory 
and we can design it by creating guilt and innocence in a laboratory, by interrogating people, and by looking to see which techniques that we have developed increase the confession rates among the guilty but not among the innocent, which of course is everybody's surgical goal. And so one, one set of studies that we are in the process of conducting is to do just that, to try and use laboratory methods to develop better, more effective interrogation techniques. The second set of uh, uh, research questions that we've been asking has to do with the fact that once a confession is released into the air, everything changes. The judge and the jury see the other evidence around that confession differently. Interpretations change. All sorts of cognitive and behavioral confirmation biases kick in so that once there's a confession, it almost doesn't matter that there's a lot of contradictory exculpatory evidence. There is the confession. In addition, and this I think is the most pernicious and most overlooked, and people don't realize this, and, and I only came to realize this three or four years ago through work I've done in actual cases. The confession has the power to corrupt other evidence. It has the power to change identifications made by eyewitnesses. It has the power to change the reports given by forensic experts. It has the power to eliminate alibis who conclude after hearing that the person they alibied had confessed, they conclude, maybe I was wrong about the hiding place. And so once there is a confession, that confession corrupts other evidence. And why that's so significant is when you go back and look at these false confession cases, guess what? You often find that the confession was not the only error in that case. There was a snitch. There was a forensic expert who made the wrong judgments about, about the testing that was conducted. Uh, alibis have dropped out thinking they were mistaken. Eyewitnesses have changed their identification, this time identifying the confessor. Uh, and so we've actually started to do those kinds of studies. And, and that's significant. It's significant because when an appeals court goes back to review a confession case, what they see often is a, an apparent mountain of evidence. But it's a mountain of evidence that all stems from the confession itself. Essentially, it's not, it's not a mountain of evidence. It's a house of cards. Wow. And so just listening to that and listening to your story, how you said the confession, it trumped, it trumps everything else. It makes everything else seem like, you know, so when you're talking about Yolanda, about, uh, you know, this person described this or this person said this, that confession just trumped all of that. And, you know, once it, like you said, once it hits the air, you know, nobody is looking um, at um, the real evidence anymore. Um, Dion asked this question, how do you get a confession suppressed, Attorney Matt? Well, you know, the thing of it is, is this, is that you're all familiar with Miranda versus Arizona, okay? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, Ernesto Miranda was no Boy Scout, okay? He was a thug and a criminal, self-professed, okay? But mm -hmm. what the Supreme Court said was, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because you did not let this man know that you were going to use anything he said against him, okay? You know? And so I want you to understand something. I know I must be, I preach at a choir here, but the next time 
somebody tells you about all the things police do for you, remember, 99% of those things are things they do because they've been ordered to do them, okay? There is no police union in the United States of America, okay? Not one of the 88,000 police stations in villages and, and uh, uh, townships that renders you Miranda warnings because they want to, okay? So what I'm saying is, is that in terms of, of this whole situation, a confession has got to be knowingly and voluntarily given, free of coercion, okay? You know, we had the Central Park Five. I'm sure you remember that, okay? Mm -hmm. I'm sure you remember that, all right? So it's just amazing when I hear this story and once again, I haven't seen the, the briefs or anything like that, but it's just amazing how nobody seemed to highlight effectively to try to keep that confession out in, in the first place. That's the first thing. If, if it was my case, the first thing I'd have done is I'd have been filing a motion to suppress that confession. If I had my way, the jury never would have heard that. Never, never. So, I mean, I don't know if the attorney tried to do that or, or whatever. I don't know. So, um, with the with the confession in, I think another flaw was from hearing this young lady talk. This man was never evaluated for competency. Okay, you know, uh, not only was he not evaluated for competency, uh, I, he doesn't appear to me he was evaluated for insanity. Okay, mm -hmm. because you know you can have alternate defenses, you can have alternate theories. All right, you know, one theory is a competency. That means is he fit and able to help his attorney right now at trial. Insanity deals with what was his mental state at the time, at the time. So if he had the, the mind of, a, I don't know, an, an eight or nine-year-old child, I question whether or not he could actually form the intent to, mm -hmm. to, to legally kill somebody. You know, so the, the, these are all things that I, I don't know because I haven't seen the case. You know, certainly questions I would, as my uh, colleague said, under the Michigan Constitution, everybody in a criminal case got a right to an, to an appeal. That's why we have a court of appeals, all right? You don't have an automatic right to have the Supreme Court of Michigan look at your case. They've got to agree to look at it, but everybody's got a right to that intermediate court, the court of appeals. So, I mean, I would just be curious if there was ineffective assistance of counsel on not raising these issues on appeal. You know, so um, it's uh, it's a tragic story, J. Love and, and and Cass, but it's not one that's new to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we want to leave on a high note, Rabbitia. <laughs> Where can we go with this? You know, um, I, I just I have to stand firm in knowing that things happen for a reason and that we're shedding light on our understanding of what has transpired through the years. And I know, you know, from the attorney's point of view, they've seen it, but a lot of times people in the neighborhood, our community, they don't understand at what risk, how things happen, how stories happen, mm -hmm. how people are being prosecuted. Um, and, and, and so this, what this does, 
is help to shed light on it. And so I want to thank you, Yolanda, that that your love for your brother. I want to thank you for how you stood and how you got through that period. Because that alone is is victorious. Now it's up to us to figure it out. There's answers and solutions. That's what I'm going to stand on. And I believe that the time has come to an end for people to continue to act unjustly, inhumane, and not have I'm inhumane written on my forehead. I think everybody needs to know who is stands for righteousness and who does not. And all that hopping, the gray line, line and all that, there is no gray line. Either you stand for justice or you don't. Mm -hmm. And so now, because of you and your steadfastness, we can take some steps with you. We can be there with you. And, and we can secure our children, secure those who have disabilities and have a greater heart for people and for families. Mm -hmm. And we can take our community back or take it as our own for the first time. Yeah. Attorney Payne, <laughs> what would you like to leave us with? Whenever you get picked up by the police, yes, say, call an attorney. That's all you have to say. Call an attorney. Don't say another word. I mean, if anybody learns anything from anything, if you don't understand that, I mean, we're lost. And and I and and trust me, I have given that advice at 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 uh, one after the other uh, events. Uh, to, I mean, and and somebody at that event will call me six months later and say, I got picked up. <laughs> and I told the police that, you know, I don't understand that. I don't, I don't get it. What does call an attorney, I mean, what does that mean to anybody? It means that they can't talk to you anymore. And you don't have to say anything. I don't care what they say. Just block it out. Just say, call an attorney. And I understand that they can be coercive. I understand that they can try to wear you down. But it doesn't matter once you say, call an attorney. Because whatever you say after that, whatever they coerce you to say, whatever they try to convince you to say, it doesn't matter. Because any decent attorney worth their, worth their salt will go into court and get that get that thrown out of court. So just please, just for your own self-interest, it doesn't matter whether you did it or not, just say call an attorney. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Attorney Pat. That is like great. We've been saying that for um for a long time now about, you know, the um call an attorney. Uh, be silent, but we hear more and more stories where people have, you know, talked to them thinking that they were their friends and 
think that they were listening to them and their side or going to be on their side about the story. So we just had to plant that into our community more. And that's why we have, you know, these, we come on here on Friday to not only tell these stories, but to educate. So um, I thank you, Yolanda. Do you want to say anything else before we leave? I just like to thank everyone for listening and finally getting his case out there, you know, getting his name out there. And I thank every last one of you for taking the time out to listen. Yes. Thank you. And we're going to keep, you know, following behind you. And when we get some updates and uh, we're going to see what the integrity unit, because his case is with the integrity unit now. So we're going to see what we're going to follow behind that and see, you know, what they're going to say and do. But so we're going to continue to, you know, um, keep in touch with you uh, about Andre Lee Nelson. We're going to say his name as much as possible bring as much attention to him so we can, you know, have some different results and see him home. Okay. So thank you everyone um, for watching and we'll see you next week on Turning a Moment into a Moment. Thanks. God bless everyone.